0: It depends how you define religion, but if you define it like we do for surveys and censuses, we are definitely becoming, with every year, a less religious country.
1: You're listening to episode 44 of the National Secular Society podcast produced by Emma Park. In this episode, I'll be considering the place of religion in Britain today, and in particular its place in our education system. The number of people in Britain who identify as religious is decreasing year by year. In particular, the number of people who consider themselves Christian, and especially who attend church, has been on the decline for over a century. There are a larger number of adherents today than 100 years ago to other faiths, including Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and Sikhism, but they are still in a small minority in the country as a whole. This all raises the question of how far Britain can still be said to be a Christian nation, or even a multi-faith nation, as opposed to a nation that is predominantly not religious at all. But even if we're not religiously Christian, are we still in some sense culturally Christian? Do the structures of Christianity, or of systems analogous to it, still have a role to play in our society? And is any of this sufficient justification for the fact that a third of state schools in England and Wales are still faith schools, with admissions criteria which discriminate against applicants whose parents do not share the school's faith? Related to this is the issue of how and what religious education should be taught in schools. At the moment, RE is the elephant in the classroom. It's the only subject on the national curriculum that is not standardised across all schools. Should faith schools be allowed, as they currently are, to teach RE from a denominational perspective, regardless of their students' religious beliefs or lack of them? Should parents be allowed to withdraw their children from RE lessons, or should they need to do so? And if RE provision in this country needs reform, why have successive governments failed to do anything about it? To discuss these questions, I'm joined now by Linda Woodhead, MBE. Linda is Distinguished Professor in the Department of Politics, Philosophy, and Religion at Lancaster University. Her research focuses on the decline of Christianity and the rise of new spiritualities, values, and non-religious commitments in Britain. Her books include The Very Short Introduction to Christianity and a co-authored study, That Was the Church That Was, How the Church of England Lost the English People. In May this year, she is going to deliver the Postponed Cadbury Lectures at Birmingham University, a series of public lectures on the history, theology and culture of Christianity. Her title will be, Values are the New Religion, Britain's Post-Christian Culture. Linda, welcome. Hi, lovely to be here. First of all, the title of your upcoming lecture series sounds intriguing. What do you mean by a post-Christian culture, and how far does it apply to Britain today? It applies a lot
0: to Britain today. I think Britain is at the leading edge of countries that were once Christian countries and have become non-religious countries. You know the majority of people in this country now when they're asked about their religion say they have no religion. And in Britain that's been happening for a long time, I mean maybe a century. It's happening very quickly in some other countries now like the USA, but but here it's really a long-standing trend. What's your position? Are you a Christian yourself? I am. I'm a Christian. I'm, an, I'm Church of England by upbringing and baptism, and I still have a lot of affection for that. But I'm not an active member. I'm not a churchgoer. Uh, I've become very disillusioned with uh, the way the church has
1: behaved. Now, you talked about how um, we're we're sort of becoming post-Christian. Of course, we've got other beliefs, other religions have become more important in Britain in the last 100 years. Would you say that overall, having a religious belief is a minority in Britain? And and would you say that the numbers of um, people who have some sort of religious affiliation are increasing or decreasing relative to the non-religious, say, over the last decade?
0: If by religious you mean that people identify uh, with a religious organisation and are members of it and use that label to label themselves, we are no longer a religious country. It's a minority position to do that. Whereas once it was a majority position. I mean, when I say once, even amongst people in their 60s, 70s, that's still the majority. Majority will say that they're Catholic or Church of England or Church of Scotland or whatever. So that's quite a recent shift. That's one way of defining religion in terms of your identification or or, Association with organised religion. If you define it in terms of something like believing in God or a higher power, it's not so clear because that hasn't fallen in the same way. Um, Some practices like astrology and tarot—they're growing, but many people wouldn't classify them as religious. They're they're spiritual or something in between. So, so the short answer: it depends how you define religion. But if you define it like we do for surveys and censuses, we are definitely becoming. Uh, with every year a less religious country.
1: Um, And certainly taking Christianity in particular, um, it would would therefore mean that it would be wrong to say that we are a Christian country these days. Uh,
0: That's an interesting one. Um, uh, David Cameron, you might remember, said that we were a Christian country and um, there was some protest but not much. I have asked people on surveys, I do quite a lot of surveying um, with YouGov of, of the British population, whether we're a Christian country. If you give a range of options, uh, people, the major- uh, maybe not majority, but plurality of people um, say that we are a multicultural or multi-faith country. That's the most popular option. And I think that's, that's accurate. I think people see that's where we are. Um, Christian is a smaller group. However, I suppose the sense in which people don't object is that we are, by heritage, a Christian country, and it's absolutely baked into our landscape, our built landscape, our you know our calendar, our week, our road signs. In that sense, people will accept it. And um, I've had Muslim friends say to me. Don't be daft, of course you're a Christian country, you just can't see
1: it because it's like the water you swim in. But, you know, it, we see it because it's still so pervasive, even though you don't see it. Sure. I mean, I guess in that sense, we, we might be all sorts of things. We might, we might almost be a classical country. Well, a pagan country <laughs> or a pagan country, yeah. people say, and
0: they're trying to revive that aspect of, of the country. But the you know, history does matter. I mean it really does matter. So you can't just take a snapshot of the population today and do a survey and say that's what we are, because there are all sorts of parts of our past that still shape us.
1: Why do you think it is that we have become less religious or sort of less affiliated to established religions over the last hundred years?
0: That's the million dollar question, which sociologists like me spend our whole lives arguing about, and there are lots of different theories. I I raised this question in a book called um, That Was the Church That Was, about the Church of England, which was the largest church by far in this country until recently, yet which declined precipitously from the 1980s onwards. So, um, Andrew Brown from The Guardian and I asked that question why? How did that happen? And our answer about the Church of England was that all churches were having to deal with huge changes that they found very difficult, like um, the movement of women um, into the labour force and into higher education on increasingly equal terms with men, like changing sexual morality, like changes in the family, and like um, multi-faith, as you say, other religions becoming much more prominent. The Church of England dealt with those problems about as badly as it possibly could. Uh, its leadership really fought and resisted each of those changes. It fought against remarriage for divorce. You know, It fought against women's ordination. I'm talking about the leadership, not the rank and file, who are in favour of all those things. Uh, it's still fighting against same-sex marriage. So I think, whereas it had always, you know, for um, uh, since the... 16th century, it had always managed to keep in step really with society, it just fell apart partly because the leadership became increasingly Christian conservative and most Anglicans weren't and so they lost their own congregations but more importantly they lost that sort of ambient Christianity where people just generally didn't go to church but trusted the church and went for their important rituals, that all stopped. So that's a long answer as in a concrete sense as to why one church collapsed um, uh, I think it was about poor leadership that was out of step, mm. and it was about the you know the, the inherent difficulties. The reason I'm emphasising the, the the poor leadership is because it hasn't happened to all churches. So if you look at the sister churches, very similar churches founded at the same time, similar beliefs, like the churches in Scandinavia, they haven't all declined in the same way. The Church of Denmark still baptises a majority of people, does the funerals of a large majority, and has
1: much more uh, buy-in from people than the Church of England. And the Church of England, is, is to, at least the leadership, is still fighting very hard to keep bishops in the House of Lords.
0: It's fighting very hard to keep bishops in the House of Lords. It's fighting for establishment on the one hand, and yet on the other hand it wants to be exempted from the law of the land like equality law, though so I think this is unsustainable. It can't have its cake and eat
1: it. Do you think that people who are non-religious, if a majority of the population isn't affiliated to a specific religious system, do these non-religious people tend to look for an equivalent of a religious system or or a so-called worldview to replace religion? Do you think they still need the equivalent, or many people still need the equivalent of religious rituals and doctrines to shape their lives?
0: I think that's an absolutely spectacular question, and it's really the one that obsesses me and that I spend my whole life trying to think about, um, because I'm trying to think about you know what replaces the churches what replaces the role that religion had? Um, is it, It's the answer, nothing. People just, they don't need those things. And now that they don't go to church, they stop worrying about those things and get on with life. Or do other things take their place? Um, I think it's the absolutely crucial question. And that's why I say history matters. You know, if something's really embedded in us, I suspect we're going to find other ways of doing things. Well, my answer is provisional. I th- think I'll ever answer it completely. But um, my answer is that religions, as we think of them, if you take Christianity, Christianity is a compact mixture of all sorts of different things, functions, activities. So it used to hold together ethics and values, belief and doctrine, you know, relationship with God, the cult part of things, um, you know, cultic. I mean, you know, worshiping rituals and so on. And I think that those things now are coming apart and there are different answers for each one. And people, some of them people still need and find new ways of doing, like ritual. I mean, take funerals, well, it's uh, it's true that uh, not everyone has a funeral now, but many people do still want ritual around the en- en- end of life, most people do, but they're finding new ways to do it, including by secular providers or doing the rituals themselves. If you take values, I think they floated free of religion and people um, work through their own values. And we find new new symbolic carriers of our values like the National Health Service, for example, rather than Christianity.
1: Now that's very interesting. You say the National Health Service in the current situation. In what respect has the National Health Service become a new carrier of values?
0: I think we've seen that during the pandemic, it became a focus for, for, for national unity, uh, both in England and Wales and in Scotland. Um, starting off with that ritual clap for carers, uh, which is classic classic collective ritual, uh, reinforcing a shared um, a shared ideal, uh, and it took over from i mean it literally did take over from the church of england historically you know it was founded after the second world war uh, with the active participation of the archbishop of canterbury and a lot of the founders of it were christians and they saw it as a way to offer the universal care that the church that the church of england and scotland used to but in a in a more professional and universal way so it always had a big christian underpinning and uh, What they didn't see was that it would really take over, you know, as a symbol of one of our highest values, which is caring for other people and also national unity. And so now it serves those functions, whereas before that the the, the national churches used to serve those particular functions.
1: With that background, let's now talk specifically about religious education in schools um, and the dual system that currently operates in England and Wales of faith and non-faith schools. So let's start with faith schools. Um, Linda, in 2018, you co-authored a study entitled choosing a faith school in Leicester, admissions criteria, diversity and choice, um, which was published in the British Journal of Religious Education. As you point out, um, and as we've discussed, religion, um, at least affiliation to an organized religion, is in decline in Britain, um, and no religion is growing. But despite this, in England and Wales, a third of schools are still designated um, faith schools, including not only and Catholic schools, but also um, schools of other faiths, such as Islam and Judaism. So, first of all, you looked at Leicester in particular for your study. Why did you choose to focus on this area?
0: Yes, I wrote that with a colleague, Mari Levitt, and we chose Leicester because it was—we thought it was that it was probably the most multi-faith for the longest time, but also manageable to study, unlike London. Um, and we wanted to look at all the schools in that, in as, as our case study, all the schools in in that city.
1: What different faiths were represented in your study? Uh,
0: the, the main Christian faith, Catholic and Church of England, Islam, and um, was there a Hindu primary school? Yes, I think that, yes, there was. Yes, there was also, and uh, there might even have been a Sikh school. You know, there, as you know, there are very, very few um, Muslim Sikh Hindu schools. Um, there are slightly more Jewish ones. Most of the faith schools are uh, Anglican or Catholic but Leicester has the biggest the biggest range we could find in a medium-sized city. What we were looking at in that study was the admissions criteria only. Um, we were looking to see how strenuous the selection was by faith and whether it would exclude people who didn't share the faith of that school. That was our concern um, because our concern in that paper was uh, is it unfair on any particular religious or non-religious groups that it's still permissible, it's still legal in this country for state-funded schools to select their entrant, that when they're, particularly when they're oversubscribed, to select by faith?
1: And what what did you find? What were your results? We found that
0: um, the criteria were quite stringent. I mean, they all have to be published on the website. And the more complicated those criteria are, the the more off-putting they're going to be to parents and children who don't share the faith so whilst a lot of those schools say that they are open to anybody and many of them are um, unless they're oversubscribed uh, in practice if you see a whole set of criteria which you think oh that looks a bit you know, very very religious uh, I'm not sure I want to send my child there it's exclusionary even if they're not oversubscribed even if they don't apply those criteria it sends a very strong signal and I think a lot of the schools use it knowing that and so we concluded that, that if you look at whether there's a fair and efficient um, school system in that one place that doesn't disadvantage anyone of any faith or non-faith you could not conclude that that is the case there's an obvious advantage to to Christian parents, many more choices for them. Uh, There's a particular, we thought, disadvantage to um, non-religious parents and their children who've got far fewer schools that they might consider. And whilst the more middle class ones can probably game play and pretend uh, that they, they they go to church or whatever it might be. Uh, for poorer, busier, more working class people, that's even worse. So the really disadvantaged group there, we concluded, would be uh, non-religious families uh, who don't have high education and affluence.
1: In other words, the, the families whose children most desperately need to go to a, a good school.
0: That's exactly right, isn't it? And I think that's why it's a concern.
1: How did these parents who, suppose you had a non-religious family who wanted to send their children to a, a faith school, what test did the, the faith school put? Did, did they require parents to, to show in some way that they were religious? Yes. Um, and the most common
0: case is um, church schools and um, the criteria are different depending on... This is part of the complication. It's just very, very complicated. Even for the Church of England and the the Catholic Church, it's up to the individual schools. Uh, There's not a uniform policy across them all. So you have to look at the particular school. Um, For church schools, though, the most common criterion is some form of regular church going. So, of course, you can game play that. Anyone can go to church. Uh, Even if you don't believe, which is a very distasteful thing to be um, (laughs) coercing is a bit strong, but, you know, pretending um, for parents to be pretending to a faith just in order to get their children into a better school. Because some of the Catholic and Church of England and in fact one Muslim school were very high performing schools. There's no question about that. Uh, And so some parents will do whatever it takes to get their children into those schools, particularly the Christian ones for for. Uh, for, for for many parents who are very aspirational for their children,
1: so it, in a way, it makes a mockery of the entire selection process. Yes, um, Charles
0: Clark and I, who do a lot of work in this area, recommend that that uh, faith bodies and the churches included should. Voluntarily remove their selection criteria. I mean, if you think that faith, your faith, that religion, your religion matters, that it's good for children to be offered that, um, we know that parents are keen to send children to faith schools, they're often good schools. Why select at all? Why not let everyone have the benefit of going to a Jewish school or a Catholic school or whatever, but be really clear and upfront that that's the nature of your school, but throw it open to everyone? Uh, Why should the fact that that, that your parents have a particular faith mean that some children have different choices from others? Uh, So I think it would be very desirable to have those criteria removed altogether.
1: How representative is your study of schools across England?
0: Well, we have... I actually have a PhD student at the moment, Charlotte Hobson, who is um, building a huge database um, of a fully representative, very large sample of all schools in England and Wales, which of course you can do from the DFE website where they're all available. So she's doing a random selection of all of them. So we, we are now getting a much, we haven't published yet, but we're getting a much clearer picture. We can then say authoritatively about how many faith schools have selection criteria of what kind, uh, what sort of values they have what sort of re they offer um, what they say about their own ethos and so on so it's a work in progress but we are we are getting there
1: what patterns are emerging so far
0: um i think there is probably more selection by faith than you would imagine a lot of people think that and the church of england often says particularly the church of england which is such a big provider particularly of primary schools um people often say they're just community schools only a very small number have have faith selection by faith. Uh, actually, it's it's larger than you'd think.
1: Have any faith schools following on your first study um, voluntarily removed their selection criteria by faith?
0: We haven't gone back and checked in Leicester. We are working with one or two dioceses and with the Catholic Church. We're in regular contact with them talking about this. Interestingly, the pandemic, because of the closure of places of worship, uh, has led them all to have to make um, special measures uh, because the criteria of church going can't apply. So they've all had to be thinking about their admissions criteria and that's a real opportunity to think about whether you need them and if you are going to have them to at least make them uniform so it's much simpler for parents and they don't need a PhD to uh, try and work out what it is they need to do to get into that school.
1: But it's a work in progress at the moment?
0: It's a work in progress yes
1: Overall, do you think that the continued existence of faith schools in England and Wales is in the best interests both of children and of society?
0: You know, I th- what I think about that is irrelevant because I do. There is not going to be a change in that because of again, it's history because. Education, the largest education providers in the country were Christian because they still own a lot of those schools and have, um, you know, governorship over them. um, A third of them, as you mentioned before. I mean, no government society cannot afford to build another that number of schools and staff them and get them up to the level and the quality that those schools have been building for decades, centuries. So they are part of our education system and that's not going to change. So I think the interesting important question is how they are fully integrated into the system
1: in a way that is completely fair. Would disestablishment help um, make the process, speed up the process a bit?
0: Well, you can convince me it would but I, 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 not that I'm against disestablishment, but I can't see that it would. In some ways you might argue that hugging the bishops closer um, gives politicians a better chance of influencing
1: them in this area but of course um you have um Muslim or, or Jewish or Sikh or Hindu faith schools where um you know of religious communities who don't have any representatives in parliament but um, presumably similar issues apply to them
0: yes um you're right um, but the numbers are numbers are tiny really tiny Um so very few children are affected, point one. Point two, of course, there are many representatives of those, you know, personally, they're members of those faiths in 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 government at the very highest level, but they're not officially representing it. You're quite right, like the bishops are in the House of Lords. Uh, so one, one possibility, I think, if there is a reform of the House of Lords, is that um, representatives of those faiths will be brought in. There are two possibilities, aren't there? One is you get rid of that 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 sort of ex officio role altogether. The other is that you widen it to better reflect the religious makeup of the country today. I, I mean, I'm sceptical about religious leaders having any representative function because they don't represent. You know, they're not democratically elected. We know that they don't speak for their followers. They have no idea what their followers think. They don't poll them. They don't really want to know. I mentioned before how on issues like same-sex marriage, they completely misrepresented what their followers thought. So to treat them as representatives is folly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Quite apart from the fact that um, it's difficult to see how you could have a a non-religious representative in in the House of Lords.
0: Exactly. So if if Parliament is working well, it should be representative of the whole country, shouldn't it? Of all faiths and none. And that should be fine. I think that probably is where I'm going to end up on that position.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Moving on to religious education within schools. First of all, Linda, from your perspective, what is the purpose of religious education or what should the purpose of religious education be in schools?
0: I think the purpose is just like any other subject. I don't see it as any different from any other subject. I would say that, wouldn't I, because I've spent my life as a um, (laughs) teaching religion uh, at at university level and um, the study of religion is not treated any differently from the study of history or of English or uh, of any other arts and humanities subject. Unfortunately, in schools, it's not like that. It's got a very anomalous status, as I'm sure you know. It doesn't have a national curriculum, most importantly, unlike all other subjects. And I think that needs to change.
1: Of course, with the way um, religious education, um, the the syllabus is determined is, um, correct me if I'm wrong, by by these um, local bodies made up of um, committees representing the Church of England, Mm. other religions, the local Mm. authority and teachers groups. Um, How well does this um, sui generis system work in producing syllabi and how far do faith schools um, follow these syllabi?
0: It produces a very, very large number of syllabi. So if you look at the country as a whole, it, it it produced, I mean, some of them are excellent, but it produces an incoherent whole. And it is bizarre that if you move um, your children to a different school, they might end up with a a completely different way of approaching the subject even with completely different religions to study uh, and that often has no relation to the to the locality or yeah, anything obvious even worse than that it means the government doesn't take it seriously as a subject um and schools often don't so it's often under-resourced Teachers aren't as likely to be qualified in the subject. It's a dumping ground for all sorts of other subjects like sex education or um, um, citizenship, or, you know, it all gets muddled up
1: together and it becomes a complete mess. Uh, How do um, school children and their parents perceive RE in England and Wales today? We don't
0: know a lot about that. There was one poll which shows they just see it as a, a, you know, not very high status subject. Uh, which, which, sadly, is the case because of the way it's taught. It shouldn't be. You know, all countries have ha- all, always had religions. Um, it's one of the most fascinating subjects. One of the best ways to uh, understand many different cultures. But it has to be taken more seriously in this country and treated uh, as a as a as a proper subject, put on a professional footing,
1: as an academic subject. In other words, as an academic subject, exactly. Uh, at the moment. Um, in faith schools, is, is RE sometimes used as an opportunity um, for proselytizing?
0: I don't think you can generalize about that. Um, I think it's so varied. We've just talked about how varied it is in terms of of, of, of syllabus and selection criteria. And it's very dependent on the teacher as well. I and mean, even even the schools that are most keen on doing that, like Catholic schools. Um, the, pa- the the teachers don't always do what they're told. <laughs> I keep coming across examples of that. So it, it, you have to go into each individual school, I think, and, and see whether it, that is actually being done. If it's being done, it doesn't work. We do know from studies that those who go to a faith school are no more likely to come out believing at the end. In fact, they're probably slightly less likely. It seems to be counterproductive. So it's very ineffective if it is being done. Hmm.
1: At present, in England and Wales, school children or their parents have a right to withdraw from RE lessons under certain circumstances. Uh, how well does this right work in practice um, for children both from religious backgrounds and from non religious backgrounds?
0: Yes, another anomaly. You know, it's the only subject where you can you can um, take your child out of that. Uh, again, completely contrary to anything that should be the case with uh, a proper academic subject. It shouldn't be necessary to take your child out for a start. There should be nothing uh, objectionable or coercive in it. Uh, so Charles Clark and I call for the removal of that urgently. How's it being used in practice? It seems to be shifting. So... It can be used now, and is in some cases, by more fundamentalist parents to refuse to have their children encounter other faiths. Or sometimes go on a trip, you know, go on a trip to a place of worship of, of, of another faith. It can be used to withdraw the children from from learning about faiths that they regard as objectionable.
1: What about um, for children from non-religious families who are, say, in a faith school? Um, do you think the right to withdraw should be kept to en- enable children, um, enabled parents to stop their children being indoctrinated? Say,
0: no. I just think that the, that, that you shouldn't. No subject should indoctrinate. That's the important thing. Um, I, I actually haven't seen any evidence of indoctrination in a class, and um, uh, if there is indoctrination, uh, as you put it, I think that's much more likely to be something that would happen in school assemblies, which are again still. And this is something again that we. We campaign against, they are still by law required to be daily and to offer collective worship of a broadly Christian kind. Uh, Very inappropriate to the multi faith and non religious country we are today. So uh, there there does need, there is, and there should be a right to withdraw from that. Um, But there have been recent cases like the Burford School. Uh, in, in in 2018, I think it was, um, where non-religious parents objected because, yes, they were able to remove their their child from a very proselytizing Christian assembly, but they were just set, set in a room on their own with an iPad
1: and given no alternative provision. So, I mean, I think in, in general, would you say then that it's better for all schools, faith or non-faith, to have the same system, have a, a standardised RE syllabus and to have no obligatory worship Um, in their assemblies
0: we we recommend it would be best to have a national syllabus yes Uh, like other national syllabuses that's that's light touch it's guidance it still allows a lot of freedom um, for teachers quite rightly uh, as to how they teach it and 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 which they focus on on with assemblies i think that they Um, We've done some polling on this. There is no appetite to stop doing them on the part of teachers, um, uh, and actually parents are quite positive about them, but to allow schools to um, conduct them according to their particular values and ethos.
1: So in other words, faith schools would have religious assemblies and non-faith schools might not? Absolutely. In in Wales, um, the Welsh government is currently reforming the RE curriculum and it's trying mm. to maybe change the title to RV Religion, Values and Ethics, or, mm. or something to do with worldviews. Mm. Is it time to make reforms to RE in England?
0: It is time to make reforms to RE in England. Um, uh, I'm watching what happens in Wales and trying to learn more about it with interest to see whether that will be a, a, a good model. There is, an, I think it's an ongoing... Um, political um, battle at the moment, with the churches uh, not wanting, of course, to give up what they have at the moment, or faiths wanting to give up what they have at the moment, which is which is a chance to influence syllabuses. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see. I, I, I think it's a possibility that Wales will end up kind of with with both things. You know, it'll have a it'll have a, a national syllabus for Wales, and the churches will be able to teach it as well. Which might not be an ideal place to end up. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what changes come about, whether that syllabus is more suitable for non-religious children and whether it will help bring
1: reform in England. Why have reforms taken such a long time in England?
0: Great question. Um, and you're absolutely right. They have. We are st- It's the only area where we're still bound by the 1944 Education Act, so every government has fought shy of, of bringing the changes that are needed, um, unlike other subjects. Why? There have been attempts, there have been some strong attempts to change it, but they've never got very far. Um, I think the political capital required is very high. This is a very controversial area. You will get a lot of um, more conservative Christian backlash. Christianity is, is oddly overrepresented, I think, in Parliament. So there'll be a lot of lobbying. And do people in the country care enough about it for some government to put itself through these really bad headlines and controversy to get the change we need i hope the answer will soon be yes <laughs> i hope i hope there'll be a minister who sees how incredibly important this now is nobody disagrees that it needs reform i don't think you know the teachers unions uh, endless public inquiries and commissions Anyone who's really thought about it and looked about it can see it's a mess and it needs reforming. Uh, we just need someone who's got the guts to really see this through. But final point, um, it would help a lot if the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church would come on board and be supportive. I think if that were the case, a minister would be much, much more likely to enact reform in this area. <laughs>
1: And why should the, the CAV and the Catholic Church get on board with these reforms?
0: Because good education about religion really matters. Uh, I don't see any reason why they should disagree with that statement. Uh, and similarly, uh, the fact that at the moment, uh, around probably more than a third of schools are breaking the law by not holding any kind of assembly because they know they can't do Christian worship. They should care about the fact that the law is being broken and, and many pupils are, are getting nothing. You know, they should just they should care about the country as a whole and not their own particular their own particular proselytizing, evangelising
1: needs. Professor Linda Woodhead, thank you very much. I'm joined now by Alastair Lichton, Head of Education at the NSS. Alistair, just reflecting on the interview that I just did with Linda, she mentioned that the current basis for religious education in the UK, um, or certainly in England, derives from the 1944 Education Act. Do you think it's time that we updated Ari based on the sort of the changing composition of people in this country in terms of what they believe
2: Yes, uh, and I, I think uh, Linda Woodhead's work on a new settlement—the suggestion that we need to, that the 1944 education act was a massive settlement, and we need a new one for education—is very interesting. I think Linda uh, is told us that very interesting. Um, it was a narrative that came through what she was what she was talking about of our, of our, that we did have in 1944 although you know we should point out it was not held by everyone but the sense of ourselves as a as, as a christian nation uh, within which the arra- the structural arrangements for religious education in england and wales kind of made sense and then there was a transition to see ourselves more as a nation of multiple distinct faiths and in that context, again, the structure for religious education in England and Wales you know, kind of worked and kind of made kind of made sense, but they just haven't kept up with that continuing evolution of, of our sense of ourselves as a nation towards this, uh, a, a nation that is majority non-religious, uh, very religiously diverse, has a Christian heritage, but not necessarily a, a Christian future and uh, that belief is becoming more individualized and personalized people don't identify with a very distinct uh, belief label and follow leaders of that group
1: yeah in particular she said you know um why should you have um leaders of a faith in parliament because they don't necessarily by any means speak for many of the adherents of that faith
2: also but why should you have leaders of a f- uh, leaders of a faith Deciding how that faith is covered in religious education, when the lived experience of someone who is very active within a religious organisation is very, very far divorced on many issues from the lived experience of experiences of people who identify to varying degrees with that faith. Typical examples that Linda raised were, you know, just how out of touch uh, the leaders of the Church of England are on many social issues.
1: Supposing RE were made a properly academic subject, would that remove the NSS's objections, um, the the NSS's requirement that there should be this right to withdraw?
2: I think if RE was a genuinely academic, critical uh, look at the full diversity of religion and belief, then it would be very difficult to justify the right to withdraw remaining. However, as it's not currently operating like that. I think we need to defend the right to withdraw. And we need to look at the reasons and the concerns parents have over withdrawing. And also a big reason that people withdraw from RE is because of just the very variable quality rather than uh, necessarily concerns over proselytization or prejudice against particular religion belief groups, although those both do exist.
1: Linda said that the reforms in Wales might potentially provide a model for reform in England. Uh, what stage are, are the Welsh reforms of the RE Curriculum at and do they look promising?
2: So on the day this episode comes out, it should be the penultimate stage of the Curriculum Reform Bill in Wales working its way for the Senate and that will hopefully uh, uh, hopefully, become law in the weeks after this episode comes out. So these are these reforms are at a very advanced stage. And there's some really good positives there. All pupils in Wales should theoretically receive the, have the chance to have a genuine pluralistic re option, although faith schools will still be able to teach their faith-based um, re as default often. There are issues around it and areas where we feel the reforms don't go far enough. But it is very clear that the changes in Wales have taken account of some of the best practice and some of the suggestions that has been met, that have been made and have unfortunately fallen on deaf ears for changes in England. So that could potentially offer a route forwards.
1: Great. Uh, what is the NSS doing about RE reform in England?
2: So all of our RE reform across the UK falls under our campaign called 21st Century RE for All. And we campaign to remove religious control of uh, curriculum and to uh, introduce across the four nations an approach to learning about religions and worldviews, which moves away from this advertising space uh, mentality that moves towards a, a truly pluralistic and critical look at religion and belief issues, we are agnostic uh, whether or not the subject of RE should continue in the same way that it does, but definitely the structures for determining that curriculum need to be moved to be controlled by educational experts rather than uh, having such an input from uh, what has been termed producer communities, that's that you know, effective religion and belief groups lobbying to have their version and their idea of RE. We need to develop a shared understanding about what the point of learning about different religions and worldviews is and if we have that shared understanding there's less room for people to put in their own particular agendas, whether that's promoting a positive view of religions as, as unfortunately the evidence is so that a clear majority of RE teachers across the UK view it as their job to promote a positive view of religions. I recently wrote to the education minister in Northern Ireland about the independent education review and we'll be engaging in that uh, for opportunities to, to change the RE curriculum in Northern Ireland which is even more controlled by religious bodies than elsewhere in the UK. We've been active in curriculum reform in Scotland and in in, uh, Wales particularly over the last few years. But England is a a bigger target. England has a bigger faith school sector Other countries put together and it is unfortunately the area of the UK where there has been the most resistance to reform and that is largely just because of the level of entrenchment of religious influences in uh, the education system.
1: So we'll see how things go in Wales, but um, a lot of work still to be done on ORI in England. Yeah. Alistair Litchton, thank you very much. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society, all rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us next time.